Welcome, my name is Tom. This is the Enthusiasm Project Season 11, Episode 7, and this is the AV Help Desk Volume 2. So this is a follow-up to a thing that I did last season, which is not not a Q&A episode, but it's not a Q&A episode. That makes sense. Maybe before we start the Help Desk, I will help you understand what it is. How about? Basically, similarly to a Q&A episode, it's a call for questions to be answered, But the difference is we're focusing specifically on audio video related like tech support questions, whereas a QA and a could kind of be like, you know, what's your favorite sandwich or whatever. And this is much more specific and the answers are a little bit more in depth and it's more it's genuinely a troubleshooting guide, hopefully more of a resource for people, you know, trying to solve problems uh, last season and in, in the first installment, a big thing that we did was like audio restoration for client projects that had audio that, you know, got messed up during recording. And what can you do to fix that in the editing process and things like that? So um, we have a lot of questions today. Thank you for everyone who sent them in. I apologize if I don't get to every question that was sent in. But again, trying to go in depth. So and and keep this a reasonable time. So we don't all just spend the rest of our lives listening to one podcast episode. And that's what we're gonna be doing today. Before we do that, though, let's talk about gear a little bit. Uh, I'm using the Rodecaster Pro 2 again today, but the microphone I'm using today is the Earthworks Ethos. It's been a while since I used the Ethos, and I wanted to use it again because I love this microphone. It's one of my all-time favorites. I have it running through my SM7B preset that I made on the Rodecaster. If I turn that off, this is what the Ethos sounds like with no effects and no processing, which is still an awesome sounding microphone. So similarly to how I've been rediscovering my love of the SM7B as long as it has EQ on it, the Ethos is one that I am comfortable taking and just connecting to you know, any interface, even if it's like a Focusrite or something and I can't use EQ on it. This is a good one, which is why like I don't really ever use the SM7B on the couples table because there's no EQ there. So I always try to use mics that sound good <laughs> just on their own. The Ethos being one of them, you know, the stuff like the NT1 or the Lewitz being one of them. But if I add EQ, then I think it just, I, I just feel like it, you know, it sounds better on my voice and my environment and to my ears and my taste specifically. So this is the Earthworks Ethos, and that's what I'm using this week. And I can finally reveal that mystery mic that I talked about, <laughs> that I used in an episode and talked about. And that is, uh, that was, of course, I'm pretty sure it's obvious at this point, the Rode NT1 Signature Series, uh, which came out. It's basically just an updated version of the NT1 that had been around for a long time. It's essentially the NT1 fifth generation without USB functionality. So that's pretty cool because the USB functionality has a lot of, it opens up a lot of really cool things in the fifth generation. But because they did not add any kind of physical controls or headphone output, it's also super limited and like kind of frustrating to use. And unless you have a workflow where you can essentially be comfortable using unmonitored USB recording, then I just wouldn't recommend the fifth generation because now you can get the signature series, which has the same sound quality at half the pr- or not half the price, almost half the price. The fifth gen is two fifty. And the signature series is 159 and it comes with the shock mount, with the pop filter, with an XLR cable, like everything that you need to get started. It's a great sounding microphone and very little difference from the NT1 that was around before any of these new ones came out. So it's just a slight refresh, a slight change in the sound profile that you won't even notice after EQing it. I think it sounds better out of the box, but once you add an EQ and stuff, they can all sound exactly the same. And even though I guess they're not officially released yet, uh, it, it will be available in more colors. So you can buy the black one right now, the classic black one, and uh, then it'll be available in all these colors like blue and purple and green and super cool stuff like that, which will be f- super fun to see. And I'd really love to get a blue one whenever they're available. Um, so that's the microphone that I was using. 
And I was actually using it on multiple couples table live streams too, just on camera, because it it looks the same. No one could tell. No one no one even asked any questions about the microphone when I was using this like secret unreleased microphone for multiple weeks before it came out. So that was my mystery mic NT1 signature series. Um, and now we can dive in to the AV help desk. So I did a call for questions on YouTube through a community post and Instagram. And I'm only realizing right now, I was kind of confused, like, hey, my YouTube community post like didn't really get like any replies, which not like, you know, hey, where's all where's all my post engagement? But typically, you know, I can kind of count on a decent number. And I realized YouTube's community post thing, if you have a channel and you post on there, this is my help desk problem. It kind of sucks. Like the you can't format anything. You can't really include links. You can't format your text. I mean, you can include links, but it's it's very funky. It's not like I find myself trying to post the same post to Patreon and YouTube members through the community thing. And it's like I can't just copy and paste like a nicely formatted thing from Patreon into YouTube because it will just mess it up. Sometimes it will just post blank stuff. It won't even do the thing. It's it's so it doesn't like when you paste text into it. So sometimes you have to retype things from scratch. It's so weird. And what it did this time, I wanted to add an image that said like, you know, it's a photo that said like AV help desk. And then there's a whole prompt on like, hey, this is what it is. Do this. And I realized um, because I posted an image, YouTube decided to just not show the text prompt anywhere. And I didn't realize that. So that means everyone just saw this random image that said like AV help desk with no context uh and yeah so (laughs) the people who replied to it were people who knew what it was but it didn't make sense on instagram i was able to do like a story with the question and you know the text was there and it made a little more sense so thank you for uh everyone who (laughs) powered through my confusing youtube post and uh let's start because let's start with one that has kind of already been taken care of for me and this is a question from gil Uh, on YouTube and says, hey, Tom, how can I seamlessly integrate a NAS system with Final Cut Pro or any other content creation tool? So a NAS system is is like a networked server storage system, network access storage. I forget what it stands for right now. It's not the booster thing from Fast and the Furious. It's not that. Um, But Doc Rock answered the question. So he answered it. He answered it more succinctly than I would have here. So what Gil is asking is basically like, how can I set up a server at home or at an office where I can then edit from there? And the benefit to doing that is your server will back things up for you and it will take the storage workload off of your computer. So it's it's like an external hard drive, but typically you can add in a lot more space than you would ever get in an external hard drive. It has a lot more robust backup features and safety features and redundancy and things like that. And it just makes it even easier for multiple computers to access at the same time and share footage and stuff like that. So it's definitely a step above just an ex- external hard drive, but it's it's not too dissimilar like in, in purpose from that. Um, and what Doc said was, I got that. I have a Synology NAS with 10 gigabytes Ethernet network, and I can edit directly off the NAS with no proxies. The heavy lift is buying that 10 gigabit Ethernet network component as they cost a lot more, but they're worth it to me. I can move 20 gigs of data in less than two or three minutes. And uh, Gil says he's getting the Synology DS923 um, and a terabyte uh, a terabyte virtual something or other, <laughs> um, but wasn't sure about the networking stuff. So here's where I can kind of chime in. Doc is entirely right. It's It's all about that network thing for what Gil is asking. Having a super fast network connection to your server is hugely important. And I don't have that. Uh, a couple years ago, Heather and I set up one. We have the Synology DS920, which by the way, the the numbers on Synology is just the year. So the 923 is the 900 series from 2023. Mine is the 920 because it was the one from 2020. <laughs> it's, that's the, it's like the same thing otherwise for the most part. Um, and what's really cool about them is they're little server boxes and you can get them with different numbers of bays. So you can get one that has like a spot for two hard drives, spot for four, spot for eight, like, and you can just extend it up. And then you can decide how you want to set up this server as you're setting it up. And I avoided doing this for a long time because I hate networking things and it's so complicated and so frustrating. This was surprisingly 
achievable. <laughs> um, so it it wasn't something to be scared of setting it up. And you have all these different options. You can buy different hard drives. So for ours, we have a four bay system and each one has a 16 terabyte hard drive in it. So that is what 16 times four, 64 terabytes um, of storage on there, which is a lot, although it is filling up a little bit because we have ours set up where one of the drives is purely for backup and redundancy. And I'm not entirely sure how this works through the magic of the server, but it um, it basically means that if one of the other three drives dies or fails, that one will have it backed up. And I don't know how it backs up three drives to one drive. I don't understand it. I don't understand it, but we have some redundancy. You could split it. If you have four drives, you could have essentially like a two drive system that is duplicated so you know copies of everything like almost like recording with dual sd cards where each card is recording the same thing at the same time or you could have no backup and you could just use it for pure storage and live life dangerously if you wanted there's all these different ways to set them up um and there it is wonderful for peace of mind it's wonderful just to have like so easy to archive all your stuff and and everything the problem we have here is that our network sucks it's horrific and there's, there's a couple things, I guess. I guess we could set up an internal network, which would involve like running a bunch of cables through the attic and things, which we just haven't wanted to do. We've wanted to upgrade our home internet because we have Spectrum, which is just the worst. If, if there's a spectrum of good versus bad, like internet service, this would be on the terrible end of that spectrum uh, because it's slow as heck. It like drops out all the time, cannot handle basically anything, even if we're connected via ethernet or not, it like almost doesn't make a difference. It's so bad. So we want to upgrade to better internet, which is slowly becoming more available in our area. Um, and the big hesitation to do that personally is that it means we or somebody has to like crawl around in our very oddly shaped and super cramped hot attic and, you know, drop network lines and punch holes. And it's just, yeah, it's a thing that needs to get done, but just hasn't gotten done. Um, so that's that's why we haven't done that. We don't necessarily need the outside internet because if we're just doing this locally and you just want all of our computers in our house to talk to this one server in our house, we could set up a local network. Um, but I kind of figure like if we're going to go through the the hassle of setting things up, we should do it for everything, for the actual, the outer net as well as the internet, if that makes sense. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because our server... I have not enjoy, been enjoying it to its full potential since we've had it. It's a great backup thing, but because we're on a slow network, there's no way I could edit projects off of it ever. Um, just browsing for clips is a nightmare. Like if I just need to go get an old B-roll clip of like a microphone or something from an old video, the time it takes to like go through files, have clips load, browse through them, then bring it back onto my computer, it's d genuinely a part of the process I dread. And I definitely need to get that fixed as time goes on uh, because it's not fun at all. If you're in dock situation, which is where it sounds like Gil is going and you have super fast internet, 10 gigabit, 10 gigabit, gigabyte, 10, 10 GBE. There you go. <laughs> I see I'm not a networking guy. But when you have really fast networking like that, then the server can become essentially just like an extension of your computer. And the same way that you might import footage to your desktop and then put that into Final Cut Pro or your video editing software, you can just import it to your server and then just edit from there on your computer, which means all of these projects, all these big things, those Final Cut libraries that can bloat up and balloon in size, none of that is taking up any space on your computer and it's super fast and it's backed up. So you're already dealing with you know the redundancy and, and the protection in that regard. Uh, which is really great. And if you need to share stuff or switch computers, you know, like you could just keep in the case of Final Cut Pro, which doesn't natively have a ton of great features for sharing workloads. You can just keep that whole library and all the footage on your server. You can open it up on, you know, one computer and then just go to another computer that's on the same network, open up that library from the server and pick up right where you left off. And it's a good way to, if you wanted to share projects or transfer between computers or whatever it might be. Another benefit to servers, which ours, even with its slow internet, can do, is you do have remote access. So if uh, if we're out of town and I'm working on a video and there's a clip from, you know, a video from a year ago that I need and I know what video it's from, I can remotely log into our server, 
even if it takes a long time, and then go through, find that clip, and download it back to my computer again. So it's kind of cool because no matter where you are, you don't have that thing of like, oh, I had the perfect, I had that perfect clip, I had that perfect image for a thumbnail or something, but it's it's at home. You can access it from anywhere, and that's really cool. There's a bunch of different systems out there. The Synology ones do seem to be the best. They're not. It's not cheap to set up, you know, a 64 terabyte server. I think ours all said and done ended up being about $1,800. But we were able to get some Black Friday deals a couple years ago on it. And hey, it's around that time of year. So you might be able to get some really cool, cool discounts on servers and drives and things. All right. Next question uh, comes from LBFAM421. I'm a beginner, late to the party, have a Rodecaster Pro 2. Where do I begin? (laughs) And somebody said, oh, just watch Tom's videos. Yes, I have a lot of videos about the Rodecaster Pro 2, but honestly, if you don't know where to begin and you're just looking at this this thing filled with lights, what I would really recommend is checking out Rode's official customer support user guide. And as much like criticism as I've given Rode and their marketing over the past couple of years, one area where they've improved a ton is with their user guides. Basically, every product has a really robust user guide on their website. And the more complex products like the Roadcasters have really, really in-depth user guides. And it's it, it makes sense that they don't include these with the product anymore. Like you don't really get an instruction book with them because they're updated so often that it would be impossible to keep it up to date. And the same even kind of goes like with my videos. There's there's helpful stuff there. And it can be uh, a benefit to have somebody explain stuff, hopefully in a clear way, especially if it's someone you enjoy learning stuff from and they can explain it in a clear way and show you through video what's happening. But the cool thing about the road user guides is they seem to be updated all the time. So every time there's a firmware update or something just they have found something is unclear to customers, they modify it and update it. So it, especially from pure beginner standpoint, that's what I would kind of recommend doing. So the easiest way to get to that is if you just like Google Roadcaster Pro 2 and you go to the official road website, the product page for it, there's a user guide thing right at the top. And the same thing goes with pretty much all their products. And as you scroll down that page, it's it covers everything. How to set up your channels and outputs, USB connections, callers and online guests, using the smart pads, using the onboard processing and EQ, recording and exporting your audio, using all the, the Rode Central apps on your computer, how to deal with firmware and all that kind of stuff. And each section dives into quite a bit of detail uh, which is really, really nice. And Rode does also have a YouTube channel. So they have a lot of embedded videos too for specific things. So it'll show you very specifically. It's all written in plain English. So it's easy to understand. Um, you don't have to like necessarily know a bunch about audio processing to understand it. They've done an amazing job on their user guides. So what I would recommend, if you don't know where to begin, is to dig into that user guide. And the way to do that is purposefully. So not like I have 15 minutes, I'm going to try to, you know, do like a crunch study session and learn everything about the roadcaster because it'll just be stressful and overwhelming. Like find a time when you have, I don't know, an afternoon or a couple of hours where there's no time constraints, no external pressure for, you know, you learning this stuff and you can just kind of sit and dig in. There's also no substitute for just, you know, pushing buttons and poking around and seeing what does what. Um, But the user guide can kind of, you know, maybe be a more structured way of doing that too. And the thing, the thing to remember too, is you don't have to memorize the whole user guide, you know, you go through and you sort of figure out how everything works. But say you never plan on connecting a Bluetooth device or bringing in like an online guest or something, you'll probably forget how to use all those features. And that's okay. You don't need to, you don't need to use them. You don't need to know how to use them. It'll be totally fine. You also don't have to go through the whole thing at once which I know seems obvious, but it can be overwhelming. Like there's so much info and so much different things. You'll go through, you know, start at the top because it's pretty, it's pretty cut and dry about how to like master the Rodecaster Pro 2, as they say on here. So start at the beginning and, you know, make sure you know what all the buttons are. Make sure you know what all the the dials and the faders and the inputs and the outputs are. And then you can learn the basics Maybe you want to learn how to set up channels and outputs, and that's it for the day. You're done. And then when you feel re-energized at a later time, jump back in and then learn about like USB and online callers and smart pads and all that other stuff. So 
don't feel like you have to, you know, remember all of this info at once. The official user guide is an amazing resource. It is always there. It's always updated. And that's what I would recommend getting started with the Roadcaster if you're just like genuinely like I opened it up and I don't know what to do. That's what I recommend you do. Uh, our last question was from was also from Gil. Our last question from YouTube, I should say, not our last question. Uh, said, "Hey, one more question. What's the method of what method of powering your camera for unlimited power? I use a dummy battery, but when I need to use the cameras outside the studio, I hate unplugging the dummy battery and finding a fully charged one. Um, dummy batteries are great. I know we've talked about them before in past episodes." The problem I've had is finding reliable ones for specific camera models. So sometimes like Canon cameras seem to, it's very easy to find official, reliable dummy batteries. Sony cameras, I have found, it's like so weirdly hit or miss for finding dummy batteries. And it kind of freaks me out. So I'm I'm not as into those. So what I have done for my Sony cameras, which I think is applicable to most modern mirrorless cameras at least, which actually, okay, if I'm thinking of this logically, if you buy a camcorder, it pretty much always comes with a power source. So camcorders, even cheap consumer ones to, you know, high-end pro ones, pretty much out of the box, they come with a power supply that will let you run it for an unlimited amount of time on wall power. Cinema cameras, same thing. Like if if you buy a, I don't know, a Canon C300 or something or a Sony FX6, you sh- I think the FX6 comes with a power supply. Those high-end cameras at least historically, have always come with power supplies. It's kind of the middle ground. Anything from, you know, the ZV-E10 level all the way up to even like the FX3 and some of the, you know, basically $500 to $5,000 cameras that's where you're like, how do I run this thing on unlimited power? And what I have done with my Sony cameras, it took me a while to dial this in just right, is I found a 65-watt USB, like, charger thing, just on Amazon, um, it's 65 watts and it has two USB-C outputs. And I tried all these different ones. I tried like, I don't know, all these different USB charger plug things. And the problem I was having is I would connect them to my camera. My camera would say that the, the it was getting power. If the camera was off, it would charge. But if the camera was on and like I was doing a stream, the battery would still drain. It would just drain more slowly than it would if it weren't plugged in at all but it still would drain. And so I was always at risk of the camera shutting down in a longer stream or something. And this, the 65 watt USB adapter, um, doesn't give that problem at all. It will charge the cameras and it will keep them running unlimited because the you know the FX3, the A7S3, the A7 IV, they'll have USB-C inputs and it just immediately picks it up and then that's it. I can have the battery and then the battery just stays in the camera fully charged and it works really well. And a benefit there is I don't have to keep the battery door open or take the battery door off or anything like that. I know Canon, again, has been better about like, there's usually a little rubber flap. You can put a dummy battery in and then run the cable through this little like port that kind of opens up. And that way the camera stays a little more sealed and protected, especially if you're using it outdoors. But for Sony, I have found this USB thing to be the best. And I like that it has two outputs because I'll put a link in the in the description to this episode. But I like that it has two outputs because I can power two cam- I do a lot of two camera stuff, the FX3 and the A7S3. I can power them both at the same time from one outlet. And then I just bought really long, uh, really nice USB-C cables to just power the cameras with. And it has been great. I've been doing that for the past four months or so. I've been using that system. And it has been like, it's one of those things, I wish I had done it sooner. Probably like whenever we get our network updated for the server, and be like, oh my God, why did we not do this on day one? That's how I feel about that. But also to Gil's question, uh, Kane Treble replied and said, look for a compatible NPF battery plate, especially if it has two mounts, you can hot swap without running out of power. So there's a sort of more traditional production side approach um, using like NPF batteries, which are so, they've been around for so long and they're so universal and there's a lot you can do with those and then run your camera off of that. So there's all kinds of different solutions to problems like this. For me personally, the USB one has been just the best, <laughs> the best one that I, that I've really liked. All right, jumping over to Instagram now. Uh, we've got a few, a few questions. Let's see here. Um, Dan Seabearded says, 
a simple man's way to increase audio levels without losing quality, specifically on the Rodecaster Pro 1. So I'm guessing uh, in Dan's case or in a case like this, you're using a mixer and interface. You're finding that your, your audio file or your signal's not loud enough. When you boost that level, you start getting a lot of hiss and noise. That could be either you you have the mic connected to like the Rodecaster, especially the Rodecaster 1, and you crank the gain or you boost the fader all the way up and you start hearing a lot of hiss and noise, or you bring the file into your editing software. It seems a little quiet, so you boost it up and then you hear hiss and noise. And how do we avoid that? There are a few a few ways. So just like going back to uh, last season's Help Desk episode, there are tools you can use to remove noise uh, after. So if you have something recorded and it just doesn't sound great and you need to fix it because you can't re-record it, um, I've been really, really liking Adobe's Speech Enhance or Enhance Speech, which seems backwards. It's called Enhance Speech, um, part of their podcast AI thing. And that's really nice because you can you can run a file through it. It'll enhance the audio. And now they've added a little slider on there. It's all browser-based, so you don't need an application. You just need an Adobe account. If you already have you know, an Adobe Creative Cloud account, you have tons of access to all this stuff already. And you just upload your file. It processes it. And then there's a little slider you can adjust for the level of noise reduction you want. It didn't used to have that. It was like all or nothing. And now you can kind of fine-tune it a little bit, which is really nice. And then you just re-download your audio and it hopefully sounds better. That's good for some of the basics. Same with like voice isolation in Final Cut Pro. I think like Resolve and Resolve has uh, voice isolation as well. And I think Premiere has a built-in one too, especially because Adobe makes this the enhanced speech tool to begin with. Uh, a trick that we showed last season is you can run a file through that. And if it's really bad and messed up, you can download the file and then re-upload that fixed file and process that one. You can kind of just keep going through layers. It will start to deteriorate the audio quality, but it in a pinch, it could work. And so that's kind of the emergency situation is you've got audio that doesn't sound great. You can't re-record it. How do I fix this? That's sort of that, that way to do it. The other thing is to sort of, it's almost like crutches and band-aids, which would be things like noise gates. Um, the original Rodecaster has a noise gate built in, I don't particularly like it. I find that it's way too harsh and I can never get it dialed in where it didn't sound like it was opening and closing and and being distracting. So I kind of prefer to just have noisier audio rather than the noise gate turning on and off because it almost, it made the, the noise stand out a little bit more. But if you're running a mic through like another interface or recording the software on your computer, some of that software can have noise gates as well that you can dial in. But the best way to get clean audio is to start at the source, right? It's just like working with a camera. You know, if you over or underexpose an image, there are things you can do to try to fix that. But you have the same problem, right? If you have a, an underexposed image and you bring it into your editing software and you try to brighten it up, you're going to start seeing a bunch of noise. And then you might have to put some like denoising filters on there, which make everything look plasticky. And then you add sharpening, which then makes it look digital and fake and it you might be able to clean it up and make it usable, but it's never going to look quite as good as it would if you had just nailed the exposure in camera. Same thing with the microphones, with the audio. There's stuff you can do through processing, stuff you can do through EQ, but if you can find a way to nail it in your interface, in your actual recording, then it is going to sound so much better. Like your end result is just going to be so much better. So with the Rodecaster 1, and like Dan, I know I... I know you're set up a little more specifically, but just speaking generally, I don't think you're referring to a condenser microphone, but if someone is using a condenser microphone with basically any interface, you should be able to get a perfect level without any any other tools needed <laughs> because condenser microphones will run on phantom power and then they usually provide more than enough gain for any interface to deal with. And so on the Rodecaster specifically, what you would wanna do is when you have your channel selected, you can see your audio bouncing up and down and Rode gives you this range. It's like these green lines that kind of give you a an ideal range of where you want your gain to be. And you just turn your gain dial up or down until it hits, until your audio is sort of averaging out in the middle of that area. And then things are going to sound, probably going to sound pretty good. And that's going to adjust your input gain. This would go for any microphone, but if you have a condenser, you can just do that right away. It's going to sound great. 
And then when you go to your actual fader on the front of the mixer, starting with the fader set to the Unity mark is a good place to go. That is on the Rodecasters, it's, they have a bunch of little lines. It's usually the fourth line down from the top, but Rode just made it bold. So if you notice one of your, on your channels, your faders have marks on them. One of the marks is a little bigger and bolder than the others. That's the Unity mark. If you start with your fader right there, like that's where mine is right now on the Rodecaster Pro 2, you should be good. So right now I'm using 29 decibels of gain. My audio is right in the middle of that green range on my input gain. And then in my mix, I just have the fader at the Unity mark and my level is fine. I can even see a little bit of the compressor kicking in, um, which would mean that my signal, if anything, is a little bit a little bit too loud, but I, I'm okay with how it sounds here. Um, same thing on the, the original Rodecaster. Once you have your fader set to the Unity mark, in theory, you shouldn't really need to adjust it, but there are so many variables and voices and environments and preference and mix and all this stuff. So you might find yourself needing to bump it up a little bit or lower it down a little bit. But if you can get a good signal where your fader sounds good at the Unity mark, that means your audio is probably going to sound pretty decent because you're not going to have to max out your fader, the, the fader on that channel and introduce all that noise. Now, What's probably happening and what a more common problem is, is with dynamic microphones, because a lot of times, especially something like the SM7B, it's very gain hungry. Um, newer mixers, you know, like the newer Rodecasters and things like that have plenty of built-in gain to power those without needing anything else. But older ones like the original Rodecaster and the, the older Focusrites and stuff, they do not have enough gain a lot of times to really power the... Um, power dynamic microphones, give them enough gain without introducing a lot of noise. So even if you can get the signal where you want it, like I know using the SM7B on my original Rodecaster, I would always have to max out the gain. And you you would hear me just fine, but there was a lot of hiss and noise. And that doesn't, that doesn't sound great. So the first way to get around that is just to add a booster. Well, really the way to get around that is to add a booster. And that's going to give you, you know, the original Rodecaster specifically has 55 decibels of gain. I know when I use my SM7B on the Rodecaster Pro 2, I have it set at 59 decibels because uh, it has 76 built in. That means even when the original Rodecaster is maxed out, it's not at the level that I normally set it at on the Rodecaster Pro 2. Most boosters will give you around 20 to 25 decibels of gain. So that will give you way more headroom. And then you'll be able to get a, a cleaner signal from your dynamic microphone. Um, cloud lifters are the most popular ones. They're almost like the Kleenex of audio boosters because it's just everyone just calls boosters cloud lifters, whether or not they are actual cloud lifters. Um, the Fethead, the Triton Audio Fethead is my personal favorite booster. Not that I have to use boosters that much anymore with newer gear, but that's my personal favorite. Uh, it's closer to the $100 price point, maybe a little less than that. Um, but I find that it works really well and it can also sometimes plug directly into either a microphone or an interface and can sometimes eliminate the need for a patch cable because a lot of times you'll need to have a cable that goes from the interface to the booster and then from the booster to the microphone. A lot of it depends on your setup, the mic you're using, the mount or the boom arm that the mic is on and what fits where and all these variables. Um, the Fethead I found to be the most compatible. The best budget option, though, is the Clark Technic CT1. Clark is spelled with a K, and actually Technic is spelled with a K in the middle as well. Clark Technic CT1. Sometimes that can be like $35 or $40, uh, and it is a great booster. It sounds awesome. Um, it's just not quite... I don't like its sound quality quite as much as the Fethead, although I don't know any sane person would notice the difference. And it's not quite as versatile in terms of being able to just connect directly to the back or to an interface or something like that. So um, those are the recommendations there. And what that's going to do is then give you plenty of clean gain for a dynamic microphone in a mixer and interface that doesn't have enough gain to run it. And that's the way to solve that problem there. A simple man's way to increase audio levels without losing quality, add an external booster, and then you're not going to find yourself worrying about you know all these post-processing things and stuff like that <laughs> pat babam says the way this call for questions was worded i feel silliness is not invited sad this makes me sad because there is actually a pun in the thing that i posted on instagram but it is it's too subtle i think it didn't sound like it didn't sound like it 
But there was, I guess no one could go back and look. I should say what it is. Um, this is one of my jokes that did not land. I mean, yeah, this is not a serious topic, but, you know, the Q&A, I don't really care if there's goofy questions. This, I want it to be helpful, but that doesn't mean we can't have fun. So the post I posted said, getting ready to record the second installment of an AV Help Desk episode for the podcast. If you've got some in-depth tech questions or troubleshooting related to audio and video, shoot those questions my way. And I thought that was funny, like shoot, shoot, but oh shoot, it did not, it did not, it was too subtle. (laughs) Um, So there we go. Uh, Let's jump over here to, here's a great question. This is from the Stage Break Podcast. What are the top three audio issues to watch out for when recording in a small room and tips on how to fix? I think this is such a relatable thing as a person recording audio in a small-ish room right now. This is something a lot of people deal with. Uh, First off, a lot of the rules would apply to any space, whether it's small or large. Uh, Small spaces, though, can sometimes be a blessing because they, they immediately sound smaller and that's sometimes what you want when you're dealing with audio is you don't want to sound big boomy reverby if you're doing spoken word if you're recording music that might be exactly what you're going for but spoken word typically you want things to be um a a little deader sounding a little less roomy reverby boomy and small spaces lend themselves to that a little more naturally as long as they're not totally bare if you're in a like a small closet that's just bare walls bare floor nothing in it then you're going to have sound waves bouncing every which way and it's going to sound really funky. But if you're in a, a typical smallish room that maybe has carpet and stuff on the walls and furniture in it, that stuff right there can make a huge difference. So tips for, let's see, three audio issues to look out for in a small room. Sound treatment is the first one, a lack of sound treatment. Um, it's really fun to focus on like, what microphone do I get? What interface do I get? But And then kind of ignore the sound treatment. It's like when people get cameras, they want the camera, maybe they want the lens. The lighting is like typically not something people are very excited about at first because it's like, I don't want to buy a light, whatever. I got the sun, I got, you know, my overhead office light, that's fine. And it's not until they realize like, wait, things still aren't looking great. And then they get a dedicated video light or two and things start looking really good. Sound treatment's kind of the same thing. It's like people want microphones and interfaces. I don't really want to focus on like, what am I going to like put on my wall or put hide something that no one's even going to see that's going to help with like a sound wave? That's not exciting, but it is exciting because it makes the biggest difference. So sound treatment is the biggest issue or lack thereof. And the way I recommend dealing with sound treatment is to start with what you have because it can get it can get very expensive and it can get kind of confusing and it's super easy to waste money on sound treatment. So by starting with what you have, if you're in a room, small room, and it has carpet, that's a really good thing. If you have a hard surfaced floor, putting in, just laying down a rug, not, you know, putting in carpet or calling a contract or anything, but just getting some rugs or something will make a huge difference. If you have bare walls, not making your walls bare, you know, hanging stuff up. I have guitars, I have pictures. They're all hard objects, hard surfaces, not ideal for sound treatment, but they all in their own ways break up and disrupt sound waves. So it does help with sound treatment a little bit. If you've ever noticed when you move from one place to another, you know, you live in a place forever, everything seems fine. Once you get all your stuff out and you're like leaving for the last time and it sounds so big and echoey because there's no furniture, everything, your couch, your desk, your your curtains, like everything in a space is affecting the sound and the way that that, sp- that space sounds. So sometimes by adding, rearranging, moving stuff in your current environment, you can get much better sound without needing to do anything else or anything extra. If you want to add into sound treatment, the thing that I think a mistake a lot of people make is they try to create like anoechic, ano, oh my God, anechoic chambers in their in their environment. Like if you've ever seen audio companies like Rode, Sennheiser, every audio company has one of these chambers and, you know, lots of other places do too. They look crazy. It's like, it's like a big room that sometimes even has a, or should have a suspended floor. So there's actually even stuff below the floor. It's like a grating on the floor. And it just is like foam spikes everywhere. It's it's almost like a scary looking place to go in. And that is where sound waves go to die. Like there is no, there are no reflections. No, it's like the deadest room ever. 
Uh, and if if you ever go in one or if people ever, if you've ever seen someone who went in one, it messes with your brain. Like it, it starts to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes people feel sick in them because it doesn't sound right. That's not what you're trying to do when you're sound treating a room. And you see sometimes people will go on Amazon, they'll buy the foam pads, and then they just plaster up foam on every surface, almost like an old school insane asylum. If that's the the visual aesthetic you want to go for, that's cool. But that's not a necessary or effective way. That's usually a waste of money when it comes to sound treatment. Sometimes foam pads can help, sometimes not, but a lot of it comes to placement. And so this is a big issue. If you had an unlimited budget and you were hiring professionals to come in and sound treat your space, what they would probably do is they would come in, they might want to rearrange things in an ideal way. Like don't have your computer monitor right in front of where you're talking because you're your sound, vo- your sound waves are just bouncing off the monitor and back. It's a hard reflective surface. Same with desks and things. But say you have your room set up exactly as it was. You're ultra wealthy. Money is no object. So you tell them, I want this to sound as good as possible without rearranging any of my stuff. What are you going to do? What they're probably going to do is uh, do a lot of sound tests, a lot of sample recordings, and bring in a lot of measurement devices to like be really specific about where sound waves, frequencies, things are collecting, bouncing and reflecting, and they're not going to just plaster foam on all your walls and ceilings and surfaces. They're probably going to bring in some uh, sound panels, sound treatment, bass traps, and very strategically place those and, you know, incorporate those into your space. And those can get, I, I think what happens is people look at, you know, you can go on Amazon, you can get like, hey, it's 24 squares of foam padding for you know 60 bucks and then you look at like i can get one two foot by four foot acoustic panel for 120 dollars. like that seems i can get one thing or i can get 20 things i'm gonna get a lot more sound treatment but it's probably not going to be as effective and i guess i guess it sort of depends there's different ways to i'm like jumping way ahead of myself here when it comes to panels and that kind of sound treatment Acoustic panels, like you can build your own at Home Depot if you want. A website that I use a lot is Acoustamac.com. They're based in the U.S., but they will do custom size, custom color acoustic panels. Um, I have several two foot by four foot ones, but you can get other sizes, shapes, and they're really nice. I have a white one, so that way it's also a reflective device, and I have a blue one because blue was an option, and I took that one. Um, And they're great, and mine are two inches thick and two feet by four feet. And they were like $100 each, which is pretty reasonable. They're really nice wood framed. Um, I think it's rock wool or similar insulation and they have nice canvas wrapping around them. They come with all the mounting hardware you need to mount them. And I could probably make my own for a little bit cheaper, but it's in my with my skill level, it's gonna end up not being that much cheaper and also take a really long time. So I just like getting these ones. Um, and you don't have to buy everything all at once. Buy one here, one in a few more months, another one a few months later. Um, so acoustamac.com has been uh, my favorite place for those kinds of panels. And they also look nice. And that's that's an important thing too, is that you know, you put these things up, you don't want it to look like a crazy place. You want it, you want it to look nice and you wanna, you know, they can be a, an aesthetic part of your environment as well, your sound treatment. And then placement is very important because it just depends on your your situation. Like I I have one placed directly in front of me so that when I'm talking, all of my sound waves that are coming straight from my face go there and sort of get absorbed and, and disappear instead of hitting a hard surface and bouncing right back to me. And that would create a lot of reverb. I also have one directly above me because I noticed that in my space with the desk and the walls, a lot of sound waves were like hitting those surfaces and bouncing up to the ceiling and coming back down. And that was creating reverb and boominess and just unpleasantness. So by putting a panel directly above me, it sort of stopped that from happening. And just those two panels by themselves made a world of difference. I could probably add in some more on other sides and stuff, but those two have been more than enough for me as well. If you notice weird stuff is happening in corners and stuff, that's where bass traps, they almost look like... um, triangular like wedge shaped things that are big and thick and you put those in like corners where walls meet floors or ceilings meet walls that kind of thing and what it help what it helps do is like prevent sound waves especially lower frequencies from collecting and doing weird spot weird things in those spots 
Um, so that has helped a lot. And that's the route I would recommend going for when it comes to sound treatment. A more budget-friendly and maybe more flexible option are moving or sound blankets. So you can just use like a moving blanket, which is like 20 bucks. They're not crazy expensive. Or you can get a dedicated sound blanket, which uh, I think the main brand is Producer's Choice or something like that. Uh, There's a whole bunch of them. They're they're just kind of like padded, thick material. They're usually black, so, you know, they blend in and... You can even use them to like cut light and stuff sometimes in environments. Those help a lot. Uh, I have one of those. There's a window in my office and I have the uh, sound blanket covering the window almost like a drape. So it blocks all the light from coming in. It also helps to keep some of the sound from coming in that window. In the case of this space, that window is never opened. I don't use it. So for all intents and purposes, it's not there. And then I have my uh, rolling paper backdrops over it. So you don't actually even see the sound blanket ever. It's just there. Um, And stuff like that really does help. You can just hang sound blankets on walls. And, you know, it it does give a very dark, black production type vibe. But sometimes that's what people are going for. Um, They're easy, though, to also like hang off of a C-stand, hang off of, you know, you can drape them, hang them, move them. They're a little more flexible. If you don't want to set something up permanently or you want to be able to move things around, sound blankets, moving blankets make a big difference. So that's sound treatment is the number one thing I would say to look for when recording in a small space. And the other things then come down to like your mic positioning and placement. I think that's a big one. People sometimes don't necessarily pay attention to, let's put it this way. I've seen a lot of people talk into the top of side address condenser microphones. You get a microphone and you just sort of, don't even figure out like where you need to place it for it to sound its best. What part of it do you even talk into? You just talk at the whole microphone and that's not going to sound that good. Like the microphone I'm using right now is an end address microphone. I'm talking into the top of it, but if I topped and talked into the side, this is what it would sound like. And you can still hear me and it sounds better than no microphone, but it, it also, my voice sounds very different and weird now. Whereas if I go back to the end, now you have all of those frequencies and that rich fullness And so a lot of people will do this and they'll talk on the side and they're going to go, oh, the mic doesn't sound as good as I wanted it to, or maybe they won't even notice. And they'll just kind of use this level of audio quality, which could be easily fixed by just learning how to use your microphone a little bit more. So that's kind of the other big thing, you know, like we took care of our space with sound treatment and now we're dealing with our mic placement and, and that kind of thing. And then This is more of a pet peeve maybe than a general tip, but please be aware of your environment. This happened with my students so much when I was teaching where I can't tell you the number of projects that I would get where students would film at home and there would be a smoke detector beeping in the background, like when the battery's dead and every minute it just goes like beep. And that would just be throughout the whole video. And I remember like this happened not just once, but like many, many times at <laughs> many different grades, many different like socioeconomic statuses, different schools and different districts. It happened like all the time. And I would always say like, how do you not notice this beeping sound? I know whenever our smoke detectors make that sound, I instantly like change all the batteries. Like I don't want to hear that sound anymore. But the reason I bring that up is because they don't even notice it anymore. They're like it. I'm sure it was annoying the first day or two and then everyone in the house just got used to it and nobody thinks about it anymore and they don't even notice it so much so that they're recording audio in that environment. And that's a kind of an extreme example because it, it's something that should be noticed. But, you know, you might be used to your space and forget that you live near an airport, a railroad track, a busy street, um, whatever, a landscaping equipment testing company, I don't know, whatever it might be where you have these external noises and you're just used to them. So you're like, hey, my space is nice and quiet. Things sound good. I'm going to record. And there's just some crazy sound in the background the whole time that you're not even aware of. So sometimes when you're setting up your space, being aware of doing a testing test recording and then listening to it with like fresh ears as much as possible, objective ears, like really pretend you've never heard anything recorded in this space before. Listen to it. What sounds are you hearing? And can you do anything about it? Can you adjust? Can you move something, turn something off, 
Can you adjust your recording schedule to not coincide with like loud noises? Is it something you just have to deal with? Uh, you know, like how do you want to address that stuff? But there, there are a lot of things that just sort of become white noise to us because we hear them all the time. But to a new person listening to what you're recording, it's going to be very, very distracting. Uh, all right. Uh, Chad, Chadwick Schultz says, who also has an amazing channel, by the way, I want to know how you decide what mic to use for each podcast recording. Uh, not necessarily a help desk, but I can turn it into one because why would you want to choose specific mics for different things? And for me, because over the years I've been fortunate enough to amass this goofy collection of microphones, it's kind of just whatever I'm in the mood for. Like, you know, sometimes I'll be on a kick where I just really like the way a mic is sounding and I'll just keep using it. Like right now I'm really loving this Earthworks. And so if I were to record another thing tomorrow, I'd probably just use this microphone again. Um, sometimes I just feel like, oh, I haven't used this mic in a while. I want to use that. And other times it's, you know, it's a new microphone. I want to try that or I want to compare it. So for me, it's very like whimsy. Like, what do I want to record? But, uh, and a helpful, so say you are somebody who has an SM7B, a pod mic and an NT1 or something, and you're trying to set up something to record. How would you choose which one? It's really important to understand the qualities of the microphones that you're using and not just how to use like their pickup patterns and stuff, but how they handle different frequencies. So, you know, Doc Rock was here answering a question for Gil earlier. Doc has a loud, deep, booming voice. He is someone that can get by using an SM7B on an original roadcaster without a booster and he doesn't need to crank the game and it's going to sound fine because he just has that big voice he has that boomy voice you know a mic uh, a microphone like the pod mic is going to work fine for him because he has so much low frequency in his voice that you have that microphone that kind of cuts out some of those lows and really emphasizes the highs there, there's low frequency to lose you know with a voice like that somebody else who has a higher pitched more nasally voice and then you put them on the pod mic and it's going to just really even emphasize that nasaliness more, it's going to sound less pleasant with them. So it's not that the mic sounds bad, it's that it's not a good fit for that voice. So whatever microphone or microphones you have, understanding their frequency pickup patterns, how they sound on, you know, how they pick up sound will help a person decide what would be the best mic to use for a different situation and different people in different situations and different voices. And that is a hard thing, you know, as someone who makes a lot of mic reviews, I try to emphasize like you're hearing this on my voice in my environment and I can try to, you know, make that as clear and objective as possible, but it might not sound the same. Even if you use the same mic through the same mixer on your voice in your envi environment, it's going to sound a little bit different and that's just part of it. So a lot of it is trial and error and experimenting too. And let's see here. Uh, Matthew Pate says, can you go over your camera settings and profile settings for the Sony? <laughs> yes, mine are nothing special. Uh, I, for the sake of speed, and since a lot of the stuff I record is in the same environments, um, I try to just get things looking as close to the way I want them out of camera as possible. And then I just throw in a little bit of presets and adjustment in Final Cut Pro. I just made a preset that I like, which is, there's nothing technical about it. It's, it's, it is just turning knobs and sliding sliders until I like the way things looked and then saved it as a preset. That's my preset, uh, which you can download from my website. If you go to hi.mynameistom.com slash downloads, you can download it for free. Um, there's also a LUT, but again, it's for my environment to my taste. So it may or may not work for you uh, in your environment. It's not for like log footage and all this stuff. So use it, uh, sparingly or, you know, with caution. Uh, but I use no picture profile for the most part. So you, Sony's have all these amazing picture pro profiles you can cycle through. I just turn it off and the camera says PP off. And that makes me laugh every time. And that's the picture profile that I use, uh, which is just sort of like the default camera colors. And I think they look pretty good when things are lit well. And that's kind of it. Um, and of course I, I shoot at the highest bit rate possible. Um, I do 24 frames a second because it does avoid any flickering from, you know, I have like a few little LCD screens and stuff, not lights that would flicker, but like devices around sometimes. 
that will flicker at 30 frames per second and they don't flicker at 24. So I just stick with 24 for that reason. Um, and that those that's that's it. As far as my camera settings go, that that's everything for the Sony's. It's really nothing crazy. Um, but I would caution against, that's what I use most of the time. That's not what I would use necessarily if I were doing like client work or doing a lot of film filming in different environments. In those cases, that's where diving into like the log profiles work really well. And I'm sure you know this, Matthew, but I'm for the the other, for everybody else too, just sort of explaining it. So my thing is pretty simple. And I guess before I talk about log stuff, the reason I wanted, I went with that is because not only is it simple, but I was realizing when I was trying to do like all my color correcting and log footage and stuff, it never really looked as good as what the camera just did. And sometimes even when I thought things looked great, it's just because I was going from log footage to corrected and graded footage, which just looked better. But it's like, I was doing a lot of work to get to just get back to zero, essentially. And I realized, hey, this camera is made by a bunch of super smart people and engineers and colorists and things who like built this sensor and all this processing and things. And they might know what they're doing more than me just sliding things around in Final Cut. So I'm going to trust their judgment and then just fine tune it to my tastes rather than try to like get rid of all that and then do everything from scratch myself for the most part for my thing. So it's a workflow thing for me. And yeah, it's a skill level slash workflow thing for client stuff. That's where like log footage really would make a difference because it's going to provide in, in a similar way to, you know, recording to two memory cards at the same time, using log footage is not gonna, not only going to give you more versatility when it comes to color correcting, color grading, but also as long as you nail your exposure, but even if you're a little bit off, it's going to give you a little more protection when it comes to your dynamic range and making sure things aren't under or overexposed. Whereas, you know, if I took the way I film things for me in my studio and did that on a client project, and then it turns out something was under or overexposed, I might not be able to fix that and make it look as good as I could if I were using one of the log profiles like S-Log3 on the Sonys or something along those lines. I did try playing around with the, um, I can't even think of what it's called now, the CineStyle, like S-Cinetone. The one that Sony, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a profile Sony added from their higher end cameras a while ago. And I really liked it, but I didn't like it more than the way I was doing things. So I just kept it simple. So that's, that's probably the least exciting answer, but I wanted to answer it because I think it's important to know the high, the know what your camera can do, know about the higher end features, know why and when you would want to use them, but don't feel like you have to use them. Like the number of people I see who will make a YouTube video about like correcting log footage and shooting in S log and all this stuff. And at the end of like, they go through this whole crazy workflow to end up with footage that looks slightly worse than the default picture profile. <laughs> like, just, you know, really smart people did make your camera and you can you can trust them too a little bit sometimes. Um, that works really well. Okay, uh, and last question for the help desk. This episode says, this is from Samu Rastin says, my video podcast has sometimes four or five cameras running into Ecamm. Just two are the same camera. How should you color correct and match them? That is a really good question. So, this is a situation where we'll stick with Ecamm specifically, but I think a lot of this would apply to OBS as well. So this situation, we'll say we have four cameras, two Sony FX3s, and then like a random Canon and a random Panasonic or, you know, two other cameras that aren't matching. If you're using the exact same camera, obviously it's very, it's very simple. You just match all the settings in the camera. And then if you adjust any settings in Ecamm, it's going to look the same because the cameras are in the same environment with the same settings. Trying to match cameras is very tricky. Um, there are, again, this is where we can go in. There's like technical ways where you can take the image and put it into your editing software and bring up all the scopes and try to match the colors exactly. That's probably beyond the scope of this discussion. But if you want to know how to like essentially create different color profiles in Ecamm, the way to do that is to make sure each camera is its own input source. So 
What that means is not using something like an ATEM because ECAM will see the entire ATEM. Even if you have eight HDMI inputs in your ATEM, it's going to see all of that as one input source. And so if you have a, if you adjust your colors in ECAM, maybe even add a LUT in there, that's going to apply to every input on the ATEM, which means it's not going to balance out because everything's going to look weird. Everything that you want to have its own adjustment needs to be its own input source, which gets tricky because that's where it's like, okay, do I then need to use multiple cam links? Can my computer, you know, handle that? But that is where a lot of people use uh, either the CamLink Pro, which is a four HDMI capture card, or Blackmagic has something, I think it's called the DeckLink. I forget exactly what it is, but it's the same thing. It's four HDMI input capture card. Um, if you have a PC, you can usually just add that, you know, it's a it's a capture card that can go inside your computer. If you don't have a PC, if you're running on a Mac or you have a PC that doesn't have an available slot, you can then get an external housing, put that card in the housing, and then you basically have a four input capture card, external capture card that you can connect to your computer externally. And what's cool about those is it will take one input to the computer But each of those four HDMI sources will show up as its own input in software like Ecamm or OBS. And then what you could do is, you know, your, say, inputs one and two were your two Sony FX3s. You can dial in your colors there, have that, you know, input one, cool, here's my color settings or LUT, whatever you want to add in Ecamm. Input number two, you can select and adjust that. But then input three is your Canon camera, say, you can then choose you can then choose input three and create specific colors for that or add a specific LUT for that camera four is a Panasonic or something else you can choose four and then do that and now when you switch between those things Ecamm will switch the source and each source is going to have its own color settings applied to it so as long as each thing can be its own input source that could be as simple as you know connecting it via USB it doesn't have to be a crazy external capture card situation, but um, what I would do if I were using four different high-end cameras and I wanted things to look as good as possible, I would then get one of those capture cards. And the benefit too is that the uh, CamLink Pro and the Blackmagic one are both 4K as well. So whereas, you know, the ATEMs are currently limited to 1080, now you're, you're bringing in four 4K up to 4K resolution sources, which is really, really cool. And then adjusting your colors and creating different settings for each source within Ecamm is super simple because in your camera menu pane that pops up in Ecamm, you just select, there's a drop-down menu, you just click it, and then you have all your sources there. You select the one you want, adjust the colors, and you're good to go. Um, And then if you're going to be switching things a lot, uh, working, like learning to make a LUT uh, is is a pretty simple process, especially if you have Photoshop. Um, there are a million tutorials out there, but if you can make your own LUT, and then that way, if you know you uninstall, reinstall Ecamm, settings get messed up, instead of having to remember what everything was, not that there's anything wrong with just writing it all down, like write down the settings you have for each camera and you can match them whenever you need to. But if you lose them and you just want to quickly re-add it, you can just throw your own LUT, your own preset on there because Ecamm will accept LUTs. I'm sure OBS will too. And then you will be all set. Alrighty. So, wow. <laughs> I don't even time. I don't even remember what happened to time. This went. This went fast. Um, there were a couple other questions, but for the sake of time, I think that's where we're going to wrap it up right now. I really do appreciate all of the questions. It's fun to kind of dive in to to things like this in a little more depth than I would in like a normal Q and A episode. It is fun to kind of keep things in a relative specific theme to theme and topic. So that's really helpful. Um, And I guess the last caveat, maybe I should have said this at the beginning, everything I'm saying, everything I'm sharing is just my thoughts and my solution and my approach. You know, there are probably a lot of different ways to solve some of these problems, some maybe even more efficient or smarter than what I've suggested So just know this is just my perspective. It's not necessarily the way to do it. It's just my way of doing it. And if you're listening to something and you're shouting at your speakers the whole time because you hate the advice that I'm giving, feel free to send in a message and, you know, suggest a a different way, a better way. And I'd happily share that in a future episode as well, because the most important thing is that it's actually helpful to people, right? That's what we 
That's what we really want. So this has been the AV Help Desk, Volume 2. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. hope you learned something. hope you had some fun. Thanks again to everyone who sent in questions. And I hope you have a safe, happy, healthy, fun rest of your week. And I will see you next time. Thank you.